Today is Wednesday, it's December 12th, no, it's December 10th, and our message today, it comes straight out of Matthew 16, it's been a while since we were in Matthew 15, we've had a couple weeks of interruptions with other things, but this morning we're going to be in Matthew 16, and um, the topic that, that is written in your Bibles above Matthew 16 says a demand for a sign. We're going to look at four phases of discipleship or Christianity this morning. First thing I'm going to do is I'm going to read part of this, then we'll we'll discuss it. Okay? So the Matthew 16:1 says, The Pharisees and Sadducees came to Jesus and tested him by asking him to show them a sign from heaven. It's an interesting place to be in to test Jesus. You really have to presume. Something to test someone. My mother gives tests to students. The reason she can test students is because she's the teacher. It's assumed that she knows more than they do. To be able to stand and test Jesus, you have to be standing in judgment of him. You have to be thinking that you have some knowledge that's superior to his. To be able to compare his answers with what you have, yours have to be right. So this, this is a hint as to where these people are spiritually. He replied, when evening comes, you say, it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, today it will be stormy, for the sky is red and overcast. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. A wicked and adulterous generation looks for a miraculous sign. But none will be given it except the sign of Jonah. Jesus then left them and went away. Seems like a pretty harsh encounter, doesn't it? They came, they wanted to test him. And Jesus gives them a quick retort and turns around and walks away. I want you to look at Isaiah 6 real quick. And then I'm going to tell you a little bit more about that. Now, Matthew quotes this as well, but whenever possible, I I prefer to read from the Old Testament so that you'll get used to seeing things in the Old Testament. You'll see that in Matthew 6, verse 9, during Isaiah's commission, during his calling, you hear something that God says to him. He said, go and tell this people. Incidentally, that this people... We're the, we're the Jewish nation, okay? Go and tell this people, be ever hearing, but never understanding. Be ever seeing, but never perceiving. Make the heart of this people callous. Make their ears dull and close their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. You can go back to Matthew 16 now. The first grouping of Christians, not even Christians, first groupings of hearers of the word that you'll run into are those that are always seeing but never believing. You know, I can think of a gentleman in Lafayette, Louisiana, that has seen the miracle power of God, seen lives in his own household transformed. He is always seeing but never believing. His only attitude towards Jesus is to test him. You know, if the Lord will do that, then I might consider. If the Lord will do this, then 
it begs the question, what did the Lord ever do to give you a reason to doubt him? You know, what makes you think, what makes anybody think that the Lord should have to prove himself to them? But this is a whole group out there that claims to be Christians, that they only do things when the Lord has proven to them that they're supposed to do something, that he's proven himself. To ask the Lord to prove something to you, well, I mean, let's be honest. We're 16 chapters into Matthew. Can y'all name some miracles that have happened in Matthew? Paralytics have been healed. Blind eyes have been opened. Deaf ears have been opened. Demons have been cast out. You know, it's not been a lack of miracles that have been done in their presence. But did this satisfy them? No. They were always seeing, but never believing. They simply wanted another one. And if he had given it to them, that wouldn't have been enough either. They would have wanted something else. This is very similar to that conversation that Jesus had uh, or that he taught about with Lazarus and the rich man. He said, no, 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 no. Even if I send somebody back from the dead, they won't believe him because they have Moses to testify and they don't believe him. You all understanding what I'm saying? The first group of people that you'll encounter as you are witnessing, as you're teaching about the Lord, as your life is teaching about the Lord, are basically curiosity seekers. They go, wow. There is something going on there, but they're always skeptical. They're always scoffing. They never really quite commit. They see always, but never believe. It's interesting, after we finish this, and I see most of you are taking notes, the rest of you are hopefully taking mental notes, you'll be able to compare these to the four soils, or the parable of the sower, and it's neat to see how they fit. What reason had they to doubt? What gave them the right to stand in judgment of him and demand proof? How arrogant is that? They were used to following natural signs, not spiritual. You get this? Jesus looks right at these people and he says, Hey, you can look at the sky and tell by its color what weather it's going to be like. Why is it that you can interpret these natural signs, but despite all of the miracles that have been done before you, you can't interpret the spiritual signs? Do you all see that when, he, when he's talking about that's the first thing he retorts? He says, guys, you're asking for a sign. You can see from the way that the sky is colored what the weather's going to be like tomorrow. And can you honestly not tell from the miracles that I've already done who I am? Why do you demand a sign for proof? Well, why did they demand a sign? We know their hearts weren't right. That's a given. So that answer's out. They were used to leaning on their own natural instincts. And the gospel is not about natural instincts. In fact, it's just the opposite. A theme that you're going to see running through each one of these four phases tonight are those that lean on the spirit and those that lean on their own understanding are the thoughts of men. I want to be totally honest with each one of you. All of you, myself included, all of us lean on the arm of man way too much. There are times in our life where all of a sudden... We start taking an inventory of our own abilities because we're scared that God can't do it. We never admit that. Instead, we just say we're waiting on God and blah, 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 blah. But all of us have found ourselves in that position. And that's basically where these Pharisees are. They're unable to break with their natural reasoning and just accept what is so plainly before them spiritually. It should be the kind of decision that says, wow, If a red sky means this, and wind means this, and clouds mean this, 
the same thing should have applied spiritually. When I see somebody opening blind eyes, healing the lame, and they're claiming to be from God, they must be from God. You know, if it walks like a duck, it quacks like a duck, and it's got feathers, it might be a duck. Well, that, that's basically what Jesus is saying. You guys can discern that kind of thing, and you cannot seem to di- make spiritual discernments. So when he, he tells them this, the real problem is that they're used to leaning on natural reasoning. Let's turn to Jude real quick and see something about that. I want to tell you something. You can have the Holy Ghost working in you and still lean on your own reasoning. It's done every day. You know, every mistake I've ever made in the kingdom. Every, you know, one time <laughs> I took a guy's motorcycle uh, and I crashed it into a Park State Trooper's personal vehicle on Government Street in Baton Rouge. I took off tearing down the road. I dug the handlebar in the front right fender and ripped the metal all the way to the back. Then I laid his bike down on the street and slid it right on down the road. I was filled with the Holy Ghost. So what happened there? Did, did God just fail to give Eric good sense? No. I saw something I wanted and I went after it. I was leaning on my own understanding. And I'll be honest, I was, I was a fairly new Christian. So I said, Lord... How could you let this happen to me? I'm here, I'm bleeding, because my legs were bleeding into my cowboy boots I was wearing. I'm humiliated because it was right in front of a big McDonald's, and I had quite an audience. The man whose motorcycle it was was yelling at me. He was a little bitty man, and he wanted to hurt me. And uh, I said, how could you let this happen? You know what he said? And I, I, I've used those words a lot tonight. You know what he said. The Lord does speak, and... I'm not meaning to make this sound trivial. Uh, each instance I've talked about tonight, he did speak to me, but please realize this is spread out over a decade. The Lord does not talk to me every moment of the day. But do you know what he said to me at that time? He said, I did warn you. You don't listen. See, we're filled with the Holy Ghost. We're also filled with a sinful nature that can't be cast out. And we're filled with our own experiences, our own thoughts about how things should be. And they war with the advice of the Spirit. Faith always borders on irresponsibility. So don't expect to get support from anybody out there when God tells you to do something. Not even peace within your own mind at times. You feel peace within your spirit, but your mind will be going, wait a minute, this makes no sense. That's, that's what the Pharisees could not get past. They could see there are miracles. We're seeing them continually. But this guy looks like us and he's a carpenter from Galilee. That doesn't make sense up here. And so, consequently, they missed out on the kingdom of God. Y'all in Jude? Looking at uh, Jude 17. It says, But dear friends, remember what the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ foretold. They said to you, In the last times there will be scoffers, who will follow their own ungodly desires. Now, guys, when you think of an ungodly desire, be honest. Name one. Let, let one come to mind real quickly. Somebody call it out. Oh, y'all are so pure that nobody can think of one ungodly desire. Come on. One ungodly desire. To what? To be rich. Could be an ungodly desire. Uh, another one. To cuss. Ungodly desire. Oh, I'm shocked. <laughs> I'm kidding. Another one. 
Lust, an ungodly desire. Surely no one here has ever had that. We all name pretty obvious ungodly desires. You know what another ungodly desire is? Anything that is not motivated by faith. That's an ungodly desire. You know, you can have a good idea and it not be a God idea. And you know what? That's an ungodly desire because your life is not yours. It doesn't belong to you. You don't have the right to do with it what you want. Now, there are lots and lots, huge amount of times where the Lord's telling you, you can go left or you can go right. I'm going to bless you either way, buddy. And it's up to you to discern that. There are other times when we sit down in our own desire, you know, I could say, I think it'd be good to go on a mission trip. And that may not be God's will for me. That would be an ungodly desire. How does that happen? That happens when our thoughts come out of our nature, even our redeemed part, and not directed from God. I'll leave that alone and we'll finish this. In the last times, there will be scoffers who will follow their own ungodly desires. These are men who divide you. Who follow mere natural instincts and do not have the Spirit. For years I've read that, and I, you know, this would probably kill our CD ministry, but for years I've read that, and I said, it's talking about the Baptists. It's talking about the Episcopalians. He's talking about everybody out there that is not baptized in the Holy Ghost. Well, yeah, Eric, that's obvious. You know who else he's talking about? Us spirit-filled Christians when we're not acting spirit-filled. Anytime you follow your mere natural instincts rather than the wisdom that comes from God's Spirit... You're acting as one without the Spirit. Now, let's be honest. We'll step off of our little holier-than-thou pulpits for a minute. If Stephen and Paul and Peter are all said to have been full of the Holy Spirit at times, or it'll say like, and now Peter, full of the Holy Spirit, what does that mean about Peter an hour and a half before? He was not quite as full of the Holy Spirit. huh? Uh, y'all follow me? I mean, these men sinned. They made mistakes. Paul and Barnabas got so mad at each other that the inference is almost that they were willing to go to blows over John Mark going home. I mean, they were, they were mad. Peter one time got into it with Paul, or Paul rather with Peter. I mean, I'm picturing a red-in-the-face kind of ordeal. You can have righteous indignation. I'm not saying you can't, and I think Paul did at that time. What I'm getting at, though, is there are times when we're totally submitted to God's Spirit and we feel it, and there are times when we don't. You need to be very careful in those times when you're not sure. Because if we follow our mere natural instincts as opposed to what God gives us, we might be following an ungodly desire, even though it seem good. Most of the things that the Church of the Latter-day Saints does are fairly noble principles. All right? That may be shocking that you hear me say that. Let me also say it's not a church. It's a demonic organization. It's a cult. You know, I don't endorse it. Every time I pass by it, I pray that the ministry fail, (laughs) you know. But it's fairly innocuous on the surface. Most of those people that are running around from door to door are trying to do something that's good and it's their desire. But is it a godly desire? No. See, our desires can be totally different than God's desires. 
that causes division in the real body of Christ. Because I may have an idea that's a good idea. I may want to rent a building. Bill may have heard from God that we're not supposed to rent that building. And now he and I are divided over it. Because one of us is listening to the Spirit and the other's not. Now, you know what's funny about that? Everybody thinks they're hearing from the Spirit. So this really becomes important that you take the responsibility to search deeply within yourself to hear from God. Church leadership is important, but it is not the end all. God has not made any church leaders popes. Okay, You are responsible for hearing from God for your life. This does two things that is wonderful. One is it keeps anybody from putting you under their thumb, controlling your calling. David, you can do this. You can't do that, telling you where to turn, what not to do. The other is it totally frees the church leadership. You give what you believe is guidance, counsel, and then it's their responsibility to hear and accept or reject. These people could not do that. Uh, Paul tells them, though, I'm sorry, Jude tells them in verse 20, But you, dear friends, build yourselves up in your most holy faith. Pray in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourselves in God's love as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you to eternal life. In other words, you don't want people that follow mere natural instincts to divide you. Pray in the Holy Ghost on all occasions. Build yourselves up in the faith. The more I pray during the day, the more I think to Jesus, the more I'm intimate with God, the more confident I am in God's will for my life. A few days ago, I was looking through the ear hole, you know, on that helmet of salvation. I said, golly, Lord, what is going on? I spent a little bit of time with Jesus and it starts to grow each day and it snowballs. All of a sudden, things are clear. I'm more confident. I'm ready to take on the enemy again. We need to, to spend time in the spirit. Listen to this next line. Be merciful to those who doubt. When you've heard from God and somebody else doubts, what do you want to do? Oh, those weak in faith, those other people, how dare they? They don't have the faith that I have. And on and on and on. The Word tells you to be merciful to those who doubt. Now, you know what's interesting about that? If you believe you heard from God, and I believe I heard from God, and it's two different things. What do we both have to do with each other? Be merciful to the one who's doubting. Both of us. <laughs> right? Isn't it beautiful how the, how the word works? It's a, it's a balance. Snatch others from the fire and save them. To others show mercy mixed with fear, hating even the clothing stained by corrupted flesh. There are times where I might be very hard with one of you. Another one have the exact same issue in their life, and I might be very soft. Basically, the Spirit will show you what to do and how to do it. Some are snatched, some are scared with fear, and others are gently coaxed. But we need to be patient with each other. The first group of people that we talked about are those that are always seeing but never believing. I want to warn you about this group. When you begin to identify somebody as hanging around the church, hanging around your life, Always seeing, always, you know, they're not without testimony. They see the lives change before them, but they refuse to believe and come into the fullness of the walk. You need to be careful they don't wear you out. These people are like weights, always dragging down your faith, always demanding a sign, always there to scoff. And it's because they don't have the spirit. And at some point, you need to realize you cannot carry people in the kingdom. Does not work. I've tried. 
And if you could beat the gospel into somebody, a lot of us would have fought every day. It, it does not work that way. So the first group that you need to be aware of, of those that they've had the witness of God, man, it's been going on in their lives for years, and they consistently quench the Spirit. You probably need to wash your hands of those kind. Be led by the Spirit, but I'm just telling you, we have a natural instinct to just totally belabor a point. If God softens their heart, that's one thing. But when you Jesus saw these people, he told them the truth. He turned around and he walked off. You know, he didn't go beg them to get saved. Now, what did he tell them? Back to Matthew 16. After, guys, you know how to interpret the signs of the, the weather, and you can't interpret the spiritual signs. What does he say next? A wicked and adulterous generation looks for a miraculous sign, but none will be given it except the sign of Jonah. Now, we taught on Jonah not long ago. And so, I think you at least have a general idea what the sign of Jonah is. I want you to think of a couple things. The sign of Jonah, there may be many ways that the sign of Jonah was fulfilled. But there are two here that are worth noting. Jonah was in the belly of a great fish for three days and three nights. We know that the Lord Jesus was in the heart of the earth three days and three nights. So the most obvious sign, the one that is most fitting, is that Jesus' resurrection was the sign of Jonah that was given to this wicked people that we're always seeing but never understanding, right? I want that, that's the one everybody knows about. I want you to consider another one, though. If you heard this and you were a Pharisee or a Sadducee, you were an Israelite, very intimately familiar with the book of Jonah, which you now are because we read it in its entirety. You're familiar with that, and you hear somebody say, you're wicked, no sign's going to be given you except the sign of Jonah. Would you have thought about a resurrection? I wouldn't. What might you have thought about? What was so upsetting to Jonah? What made Jonah matter than anything? You got it, Pop. Spit it out. See, Jonah got a word, first of all, to go to the Israelite people and tell them they're going to get their coastland back. No problem. He did that, Johnny, on the spot. But then in the book of Jonah, he gets a word to go to Nineveh. Nineveh were Gentiles. He didn't want to do that. So if you're a Pharisee and you're here and you're not going to get any sign except the sign of Jonah. You know what another sign of Jonah is? I've never seen this before I started studying this this last time. The light to the Gentiles. See, not only did Jesus resurrect, and that was a sign of Jonah, but what happened immediately after that? God began grafting in a Gentile church because of the Jewish unbelief for the purpose of making Israel jealous. Just like Nineveh repenting should have made Israel want to repent and turn to God at that time. Y'all get me? That's just Lanyap. I thought that was too good to pass up. Okay, the first group, always seeing but never believing. Here's the second group. And we're going to read Matthew 16, 5 uh, through 12 now. When they went across the lake, the disciples forgot to take bread. Be careful, Jesus said to them. Be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees. They discussed this among themselves and said, It is because we didn't bring any bread. Somebody's talking about yeast, they must mean bread, right? You know, we look at this and we go, boy, how stupid. Y'all, 
How many times in your life has God said something that you didn't understand? I mean, don't we end almost every prophecy, but not in the way that you would think? I even get sick of hearing that, personally. You know, the Lord says he will do this, but not in the way that you would think. You're like, well, yeah, that's a given. Okay. Jesus said things to these people that were spiritual words that they didn't get. And you know what? He says things to his people today that because of our natural thinking, we just don't get. They discussed this among themselves and said, it is because we didn't bring any bread. Aware of their discussion, Jesus asked, you of little faith. Why are you talking among yourselves about having no bread? Do you still not understand? Do you not remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many basketfuls you gathered? Or the seven loaves for 4,000 and how many basketfuls you gathered? How is it that you don't understand that I was not talking to you about bread? But be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees. They understood that he was not telling them to guard against the yeast used in bread, but against the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Here's the second group of Christians. These guys here, did they want to know the truth? Yes. Of course they did. These are followers of Jesus. They're disciples. Were they seen? Yes. They were just slow to understand. They misunderstood the things of God. As you're looking at people, there are some that are always seeing but never believing. There's another group that is there. They're seeing it and they want to believe it's not a hard-hearted situation. They've just lived according to the principles of this world so long that they don't always understand how the kingdom works. This is, this is when you get into Christians that when they get into trouble, you know, when things get difficult, their hearts are right. They just don't understand how the principles of the kingdom work. And so they start looking for natural solutions. That's, y'all, that's every one of us. That is every one of us. That's every time that the Lord said, I will provide for you, Eric. I will provide. And yet, it starts coming down to the wire and I start sweating it and can't sleep and I have anxiety because I can't pay a bill. That is, God said it, I believe it, and now all of a sudden I'm looking to my own strength. I'm looking for natural things. Because the spiritual words that Jesus spoke are hard for me as a person still attached to a dead man. It's hard to receive. These guys had seen him feed thousands of people with very little food. They knew he could do it. They believed that he could do it. Yet when the opportunity came for them to show that belief, they totally miss it. Beware of the yeast. Sure, Jesus must be saying this because he's worried that we don't have enough bread. Why would Jesus be worried you don't have enough bread? You see him create bread out of almost nothing. They miss the spiritual teaching for the natural. I'm amazed that you can read Scripture that is powerful, that is spiritual, that is awesome to Christians that love the Lord. And they get, you know, you're, you're talking about something as awesome as the faith to walk on water. And all people get out of it is that he was actually standing on liquid or some, something totally in the natural. You know what I mean? Or, or the, the, the parting of the Red Sea. You know, and they say, well, there must have been an earthquake or something. You know, they believe that it happened. They just look for a natural means that it must have happened. Does that make sense? I didn't spend a lot of time thinking about analogies here. In John 6, 63 through 64, you don't have to turn there. I, I mean, I can quote this, basically. Jesus said, the flesh counts for nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit and they are life. 
to try to take the Bible and make it a system of rules to justify your position is to take a scripture that says you must eat my flesh and drink my blood and go cut off people's arms and legs. You see, it's not just a book of rules. It's not just a book that you can look at in the natural and read like a law book. Well, let's see. I want to do this, so let's see what I can find in here that will justify me doing that. You can't. The Bible is spiritual. And I'll give you, I'll give you a, a great example. You can study all day long about binding and loosing, which is something that, that we're going to read about here in a minute. You'll never find a definite situation that tells me to release Gary Kenshin to go do work like I just did. And yet I know that it was the perfect will of God. You know why? Because he revealed it from heaven to me. So in this second group of Christians, what you find are people that want to do the will of God, but they misunderstand the things of God. That's okay. These are stages of discipleship. At least they've graduated from those that are always seeing but never believing. What was the correction that Jesus gives? How do you fix it when somebody wants to do the will of God, they just don't understand? You address it at the root of the problem. You say, hey, friends, brothers, sisters, children of God, you're not exhibiting faith here. You remember all of the miracles that were done? Exhibit faith and God will come through for you. That's what Jesus did. It sounds kind of harsh, oh, you of little faith. But if you think about it, Jesus was close with these guys. It may not have been that he said, oh, you of little faith, you know, like you miserable disciples. What if he kind of smiled and said, oh, you of little faith. Guys, didn't you see me do all the miracles? This, I'm not talking about raising up uh, yeast for bread. I'm talking about something spiritual here. Get it. Now, another principle you need to get from this group, the group that is most susceptible to false teaching, the most susceptible are not those that are always seeing but never believing. They don't care what's taught. I mean, they're, they're in error anyway. But it's this second group, those that are around the work of God, those that believe the work of God, but they don't yet have a firm grasp. They don't yet really understand how the spiritual works because they're, they're still not really dead to self. They're in that process. They're susceptible to the teaching, the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees because to, in the natural, which they're still operating under about half the time, it sounds good. This is why you have so many people that have been born again, that have been spirit-filled, that love the Lord, but they settle for doctrine that is not God's doctrine. Because it sounds good. They never got used to depending wholeheartedly on the Spirit. They never got that far. Somewhere along the way they said, I believe and I know God can do it. And maybe even now I speak in other tongues. But they're still used to reasoning things out in the intellect. You know, the thought of God revealing something from heaven to them seems kind of far-fetched. Maybe He does it with the pastors, but not with us. And they usually wouldn't admit to that. That's just how they act. And I'm saying they. In many cases, it's you. In a lot of cases, it's been me. We're going to see a progression here from those that cannot believe, the first group, always seeing but never believing, to those that are seeing but often misunderstanding, who are susceptible to the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees, to a third group. Something that I want to get before we move on from this group. You remember I said that they're still about 50% leaning on the flesh? You'll spend your whole Christian walk trying to put off the flesh and its desires. We're not like the first group, always seeing and never believing. Only able to reason in the natural. 
we're the group, if we're in this second one, that now have the spirit at work too. We're just used to, it's kind of like we're 30% uh, spirit and about 70% flesh. You know, we're able to hear from God. We're able to uh, understand things. But about 70% of the time, we're still leaning on our own strength. Well, there's a cure for that. And that is the maturing process of discipleship in the kingdom. Y'all turn to Colossians 3. The importance of this scripture that we're fixing to read just could not be overstated. It's one of those that is probably marked in your Bible, probably underlined, probably heard a lot of passages on it. But if you don't apply it in your life, you've been deceiving yourself. Colossians 3, verse 5. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. Now, he's fixing to list obvious things that belong to your earthly nature. Remember, it's not just these obvious things. Your earthly nature is any time that your flesh is trying to override the Spirit of God. Friends, that's a lot. That's a lot. How many times have you been sitting on the couch, you thought, man, I'll read the Word. I'll go worship. I ought to get on my face and pray. Seinfeld's coming on. Maybe I'll watch Seinfeld. And the battle kind of goes, and pretty before long, you got that clicker in your hand, and you're watching Seinfeld. When you know good and well, the Spirit just urged you to pray. But he's a gentleman. He doesn't shout at you. And because we're still used to following our mere natural instincts, because we still have that old worldly nature in us, it's not we're not robots to the Spirit. We've not learned to treat the Holy Spirit as if he were God to us when it benefits us. When it's a warm, fuzzy prophecy, when it's showing us something in the future, when it's flamboyant, we listen. When it's hard, we tend to follow our mere natural instincts. Well, here's, here's what the Bible says. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. Next time you feel the Spirit urge you to do something, your flesh urge you another way, you need to put it to death. Kill it. Grab it by the hair and cut off its head. Sexual immorality... Impurity, impurity. Lord, any kind of sin you can think of falls under that category. Lust, lust is not just that for a woman or for a man. Lust is an unhealthy desire. You can lust for a car. You can lust for a computer. You can lust for a job that you don't have. You can lust for a sweater. We often only use the word lust as it relates to a man and a woman because it's vivid. It's, it depicts a kind of overwhelming desire. Well, people have that for a lot of things. Lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived. But now you must rid yourselves of all such things as these. Anger. Get that. As a Christian, you need to rid yourself of anger. The only kind of anger that is acceptable is the kind of anger that comes from the Holy Spirit. And friends, that's rare. It's the kind of, you can only think of a couple examples in Jesus' whole life where he had that kind of anger. Malice. He said, well, I'm not angry. I just don't like them very much. That's malice. Slander. Have you slandered somebody this week? 
Is there somebody that's made in the image of God that loves you? That if you didn't say it out loud, you thought bad things about? Hmm. Y'all, that, that's part of the nature that needs to be put to death. And filthy language from your lips. I don't know why this has creeped in me a bit. I'm being honest here. You know, there was a time when to say the word C-R-A-P was highly offensive to me. I remember standing flat-footed and just rebuking this guy because he kept saying it. And somehow or another, that's worked into my life. Uh, you know, I need to get rid of that. Just being honest, it's not fitting for somebody who speaks the very words of God as uttered by the Holy Spirit to speak like that. He said, well, it's not sin. Well, that's beside the point. It's not profitable. What is it that makes us think that if we're quoting somebody, it's okay to cuss? You know? What is it that makes us think that if we're really trying to make a serious point, it's okay to emphatically use a cuss word? Wasn't in anger, we are just trying to make a point. Like, I told that SOB, you know, whatever it might be. What is it that makes that okay? You know where, you know where good Christian people do that? With their kids. You do that again, I'm gonna beat your ass. Uh huh. You got me? Y'all, we need to rid that stuff from our lives. It's unfeeding. It's not, it, it's just, now, come on. Everybody's staring at me and that's good. That's why I'm standing up here preaching. Okay? Cause I'm full of weakness. I'm also full of God's strength and power and I can overcome any bit of this and you can too. Do not lie to each other. There was a time I didn't believe Christians did that. Then I found out that when people want to be seen a certain way, they're willing to lie. Now, all the time, mind you, they don't really mean to. They just find themselves exaggerating stories, you know, and not in some kind of harmless way. They find themselves making them, themselves look better than they are. When they're telling you what happened in a scenario, they leave out the parts and make them look bad, you know. That kind of gentle shading, as one of my brothers put it to me one time, is sin. Since you have taken off your old self with its practices, therein lies the bottom line. You want to be a spiritual Christian? You want to be the kind that God can work with? You have to put off your old self. See, old self, natural instincts, human desires, all those things are synonymous. If you don't do that in Christianity, you're never going to be a very pleasing Christian to the Lord. And see, He delights in giving you the kingdom. You're the joy of His heart and the apple of His eye. Required that we are continually progressing. Not that you're perfect, but that you're working on it. That you're trying. You put off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self. Guys, it's not okay to put back on that old hat. That business mind. Well, I'm a Christian, but God gave me good business sense. Yeah, and you know what? It's worth about as much as what Judah picks up on Saturday mornings, you know? I mean, it, it's, it's hockey. Paul counted his entire life's experiences outside of Christ as dung. And yet we think it's okay to, to talk about our vast experiences and lean on our understanding in those areas. You know, I could look at you sometimes and say, now, I know you believe you heard from God, but I was a mortgage specialist. And let me tell you what I... God doesn't care. He doesn't care how prudent you think things are or are not. 
He's interested in you obeying His voice. If you don't do that, you're not putting on the new self. You're clinging to the old self. And it will never be blessed by God. You know that song, Some Trust in Chariots, Some in Horses, But We Will Trust in the Name of the Lord Our God? Nobody here's got horses or chariots. That's not what that's talking about. It's talking about your own resources. You have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge, in the image of its creator. Guys, what you're supposed to be receiving is knowledge from God that is renewing, that is revolutionizing, that is totally renovating your thought process. If you think the same way today that you did five years ago, something is wrong. If you're put into a situation today and you react the same way that you did five years ago, provided that it's something other than led by the Spirit, it's wrong. God is renewing me. There's a time when if you stood in front of me and spit on me, I would knock your teeth through the back of your head. But that guy has died. Now my thoughts are renewed. The Holy Spirit would well up in me and I would find a way to show you love. That is what's supposed to be going on. It's not okay. We don't lose our religion for a moment. We don't get to step out of the kingdom for a moment and make a worldly decision and it be okay. There is no time out. We don't have to be Christians for a moment. You are supposed to die to the old guy and take on the new. You're constantly, your mind is being washed, renewed, renovated by the Word of God. In other words, you should be changing your mind about how you deal with things. Not falling into old habitual patterns. That's just the way I am. I've always done it that way. Well, be renewed. If you can't be renewed, you're not being saved. Saved is a process and it means to be renewed or restored. See, what you don't understand is this renewing of your mind is the saving of your soul. Is that hard? It was to me. But here's the good news. This is only the second phase. There's a third phase. And in some areas of our life, I'm in the first one. Always seeing, never believing. In some areas of my life, I'm in the second phase. That old sinful nature still kind of outweighing my spiritual thoughts. In other areas, I'm in this third phase, praise God. In other areas, I'm in the fourth. I am a work in progress. Somebody asked me this week what I thought the best attribute a Christian could have is. I thought about it, and I know about half of you would say love. I know another half of you would say faith. You know, and that doesn't leave another half here. But those, those faith, hope, and love would probably be the ones that would come out. You know, I really don't think that's true. He said something controversial. I think the best thing a Christian could have is sober judgment of their life. Because if you don't have sober judgment, you don't know where you're lacking in those three things. You don't have the ability to look and say, you know, I'm sinning and I need to stop. You don't have the ability to improve because you do not look at yourself with the mirror of God's word and apply it to you. You apply it to everybody else. But... If you can look at your life with sober judgment, if you are very well aware of your personal inadequacies, if you are very well aware of where you blow it, there is great hope for you. Because God will take the weaknesses that you acknowledge, that you lay before Him, and He will cause them to be your strength. But when we hide our weaknesses, 
When we pretend like we're not there. When we act like we are not sick and have no need of a physician, the doctor does not visit and you remain in your putrid disease. The first category was always seeing, never believing. The second category of Christians are those that see and believe but are slow to understand and apply. The process of putting off the old way of thinking is important. Believers in this category should expect and welcome instruction so that they may become spiritual. Your goal is to think more spiritually and less in the natural the longer you're in the kingdom. The yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees is always trying to corrupt the truth. And the people that are most susceptible to it are those that have not really learned to put off the old self yet. Because the thoughts seem like good thoughts. You know what the third category is? I wouldn't expect you to. I didn't know before I did this study today because I made up these categories as I was teaching. <laughs> All right, picking up in Matthew sixteen thirteen. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? If you don't have it, you already get the CD by Don Potter. It's a beautiful song. It's fantastic worship. They reply, some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. And still others say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Then the God of all of the universe turned his gaze upon them and said, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ. The son of the living God. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, or a rock, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades or hell will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he warned his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Christ. The third category of believers are believers that have learned to receive revelation. They don't have to be told anymore every little detail. They've learned to hear from God for themselves. This gives you a distinct advantage in the fight with the flesh. Because that 30% spirit and 70% flesh that was in us in category 2 is now being whittled down every time God teaches you something. Every time God magnifies something to you so that it's a real part of your life. Your thinking is being renewed by God. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, I've been to Caesarea Philippi, this was a pantheon of gods set in the mountains uh, at the base of uh, Mount Hermon, the Dan, the Panias, and the Hot Panire, three tributaries that form the Jordan. They come down off of this mountain and it is beautiful. And the Romans had set up uh, worship of the god Pan, worship of all of the Roman gods in this place. And these Jewish guys are there and probably half intimidated looking at all of this. And Jesus says, with this is his backdrop. Who do men say that I am? Now, we've been taught, we would say, you're the Lord, because we've been taught to say that. But when you're faced with a situation 
where you have the opportunity for money to be your God. Or you have the opportunity for entertainment to be your God. Or you have an opportunity for security to be your God. Is Jesus really Lord or are those other things your God in that instant? See, anything that we place above God's will, anything that we allow to lead us besides God's will, is an idol to us in that very moment. You know, we think of idols... As little statues. Some of us have become to think of idols as TVs. And idols, whatever takes precedence over God's will in your life. Peter, when faced with all of these idols, reaches into the depths of his spirit and God himself reveals to Peter, you are the anointed one, is what Peter's answer. God revealed the answer to Peter. You are the anointed one. You are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus was so excited about this that he says, Peter, you're a rock. And buddy, it's on this rock I'm going to build my church. It's on the fact that men can receive revelation directly from God. See, this takes us out of every other organized religion in the world. We're not dependent that anyone should have to teach us. God himself can. And he's appointed men to assist you, to disciple you, to teach you how to get revelation. Our decisions cannot be made by natural instinct, but rather through the revelation of the Spirit. When he tells Peter about binding and loosing and having the keys of the kingdom... The old carnal church, the one that's not even a church, that's out there, the synagogue of Satan, says, wow, that means Peter was the Pope. But he had the keys to the gates of heaven. And what if he chose to let somebody in, they were let in. That is not what this is teaching. This is teaching point blank, bar none. Peter, you have the ability to hear from God. And when you hear from God that something should be bound on earth, you speak it and it will be bound because you're God's mouthpiece. When you hear from God that something should be loosed on earth, You speak it and you will be God's mouthpiece and it will be done. But what's required? That you get the revelation in that area. I got a revelation that Gary Kenshin was to be released. I did that and you know what? There's no question in my mind. It is done. There are other times we pray and we bind and we loose when we pray. We don't really have the revelation we're hoping. The only time that you know that this works is when God has told you. You've gotten the revelation that came from God and not any man, and you speak it. That is the keys to the kingdom. That is binding and loosing. That is the stage of Christianity where you begin to be really powerful because you're not leaning on your own instincts anymore. You get in a situation that's difficult, and instead of reaching into your wealth of knowledge, your reserves of Uh, experience, your bank accounts, your education, all of those things, you can bend down in the face of all of those idols that are lined up there waiting to give you an answer. And you can hear from God Himself. And He may tell you to do something that seems so stupid, so irresponsible, and so wrong that it's hard for you to do it. But if you believe it came from God, you do it and you will always be blessed. That's Christianity. That's what Christianity is. It's the ability to hear from God so strongly that you act on it. 
Now this is different from the first group that is demanding a sign from God. Always seeing, but never believing. This is somebody who is eager to believe. And through constant discipleship, like the second group, being corrected about their faith, being corrected, they are ready to hear and receive from God. Friends, I heard from God to start a church. That old Baptist hymn, Though none go with me, I still will follow. Whether one of you is in this place in a year, I will be carrying on God's work even if I'm preaching to my kids because it's what God told me to do. Now, I love lots of people. You know, and I've received encouragement from the godless people I know just to go back to Baton Rouge. It's easier there. That's a good idea. It's just not God's. It's easy for me. I could do it. I could be right on staff. Probably pick up some income. All kind of things. I even got a house there. That's not God's idea for my life. In a lot of ways, that appeals to me. It's not what God called me to do. I have a revelation that I have to cling to. Because that's the very thing that the kingdom's founded on. Now, as much as I'm emphasizing that, get this. You cannot claim a revelation where you don't have one. You can't have faith in something that you've not heard. can't. can't go unless you're sent. can't believe unless it's been preached. Paul said all of those things. Sometimes people try to grab somebody else's revelation. Reinhard Bunker's got an awesome revelation. It's not mine. But because I see it working, I could try to grab onto that. I could stand up here and preach in a German accent. I could stand up here and preach like Reinhardt. But it's not what God... It's somebody else's armor. It's not my revelation. The kingdom of God is comprised of... Actually, the nations of people are comprised of these categories. Those that always see and never believe. No hope for them. Not if they stay there. It's comprised of those who see and they believe they just aren't far enough along yet to understand. They're still depending on the arm of of man and they're having to learn and be discipled. The third group are those that have the ability to receive revelation from God. Boy, that's awesome. But that's still not the most mature. Wouldn't you think that's the most mature? Those that hear from God? Those that have been discipled? There's a fourth group. Am I doing okay on time? There's a fourth group. The fourth group here, I think we're getting close to an hour. So we're, we're right on time. We're going to read uh, through the end of the chapter and you'll get the fourth group. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples. Incidentally, when you see that word disciples, you need to think of trainees, those under discipline. Something is wrong with your Christian walk if you cannot receive training. Training's not always peaches. It's not always strawberries and ice cream. Training is very, very often. Pop, didn't you have a guy that you played football with in college that used to watch the Weather Channel every day and pray that it would rain so he didn't have to go through his physical training? Go ahead, ask. Just quickly. Oh. Uh, illegitimate son. Yes, absolutely. And that's Hebrews 12. It's Hebrews 12. In fact, we're going to get to that here in a minute. But what I'm getting at with this is that we are supposed to be in continual training. You don't train to achieve a level that you're already at. You're training always to go further than you are. 
You know, training wouldn't be training if you were just even keel holding your ground. Training is always pushing you further. If you work out, you can't lift the same weights for a whole year. At some point, you have to progress through the weights, right? Or else it's, it's of no benefit anymore. You, you plateau. In your Christian walk, you should always be going further. Disciples. I don't know. I got off on that. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Peter. Who got the keys to the kingdom, by the way, supposedly? Peter. Because Peter received a revelation. Now get this. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Him being Jesus. Never, Lord, he said. This shall never happen to you. Is that a good thought? Yes. That's Peter's loyalty. That's Peter's love. That's Peter's desire to want to protect Jesus. Was it God's will? Absolutely not. Isaiah 53 says it was God's will to crush Jesus. Yes. But that's still, you're going to find out Peter's beyond stage two. And, and I'll show you why in just a minute. See, when we get ideas that come from the natural, and you always will, stage one, dominated by it. Stage two, it participates about equally with the spirit, if not a little more than equally. Stage three, spirit's beginning to win the battle. You're walking around more in contact with the spirit than the flesh. Stage four, you still get those thoughts. Peter still gets it. The th- he had in mind the things of men. But you know what the most mature group of Christians are? It's called the correctable. Those that can receive correction. See, if you can receive correction, there is hope for you. You will continuously identify areas where you have leaned on the flesh and had in mind the, the things of men. So you will continually be getting better and improving your walk with God. But you can receive all the revelation in the world. And if you are not correctable, you are damned to live a horrible Christian life that does nothing but possess knowledge and not able to carry it out because your flesh dominates you. Peter took him inside. This is the same guy that got praised and said, man, you're a rock. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said. This shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter. He said to Peter. Get this. He's not praying into the distance. He's not talking to some other area. He's looking Peter in the face, probably pointing his finger, and said, get behind me, Satan. Do you think that was hard for Peter to hear? Peter had just been praised in front of everybody because Peter was the man that could receive the revelation of God. And now, a breath later, get behind me, Satan. Why? You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Oh, this really cuts the mustard here. When you have something in your mind other than the will of God, no matter how good it may seem, it's Satan. See, Peter had a great idea. I don't want anybody to hurt Jesus. He's peaceful. He's loving. He's awesome. He's the Christ. I don't want anybody to kill him. I don't want him to have to suffer. I want him to live always. No, Lord, this shall never happen to you. 
Any one of us could have said that. Any one of us. And Jesus called him, addressed Satan in him when he said it. Is that something? But see, Peter's life does not end here. Peter didn't take his ball and go home and say, Well, Jesus corrected me in front of everyone. How insensitive. Peter knew, like he said in John 6, Lord, you have the very words of life. He knew about receiving revelation. He knew that it was important to be correctable. In fact, Peter was a Jew. So he was raised. He was raised with the idea that you had to be correctable. Receiving revelation is important. Receiving correction is even more important. Look at Proverbs 12. Who's there? Proverbs 12, verse 1. Read it. Whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but he who hates correction is stupid. Now, wow, is that blunt? You love correction, you love knowledge. You hate discipline, you are stupid. That's God saying that. God said that. If you hate discipline, you are stupid. If I said that, I would feel kind of convicted. Like I was saying something ugly to you. You're stupid. But God says it. Turn with me to Colossians 1. We're almost done here. Hope y'all aren't too sick of me at this point. I could be criticized for a lot of things, but one of them that I cannot be criticized for is preaching down. You. When I preach these messages, they come right out of my own inadequacies. Colossians 1, verse 9. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you and asking God to fill you with the knowledge of His will through all spiritual wisdom and understanding. God should be filling you as a Christian in category 3, somebody who's learned to receive from God. He should be filling you with the knowledge of His will. As a Christian in category 4, somebody who's correctable, any time it's been brought to your attention that what you are doing or about to do or have done or, or whatever that is not in line with the knowledge of His will, when, you, when that comes to your attention, you should be able to receive it and keep going. And we pray this in order that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and may please Him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to His glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience and joyfully giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the kingdom of light. God qualifies you to share in His inheritance by redeeming you and giving you His spiritual wisdom. Part of His spiritual wisdom, though, is discipline. It's correction when you're not getting it right. See, the first group of Christians is not correctable because they don't even believe God enough to try. 
They're just watching. In fact, I, I keep calling them Christians. They're really not. They're people who think they're Christians, though, because they're around it. The second group are people that believe, but they're slow to understand. And they're usually difficult to correct because they're used to leaning on their flesh. They're used to being right, winning arguments, debating with themselves. The third category of Christians learns to receive from God so they're well aware that some things in them are godly and some things aren't. The fourth group of Christians is correctable about those matters, whether it's God's correction, the Word's correction, or somebody else's correction. That is maturity. When you can put all of those things together, you see and that causes you to believe. You're seeing, you're believing, and that's causing you to understand because you're applying the lessons. You're seeing, you're believing, you're understanding, so you're learning to receive spiritual wisdom from God. Because you're receiving spiritual wisdom from God, you suddenly are correctable because you're aware of the flaws that are in your life. Back to Matthew 16. Get behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block to me. Do you get that? Somebody was a stumbling block to Jesus. The thing that Peter said was a stumbling block to him. You don't know how many times people that love me, that are godly, people that are probably more godly than me have been a stumbling block to me. Because they had in their mind their will for my life. They had in their mind the things of men. And it was contrary to God's will for my life. That's a stumbling block. Y'all, our whole lives should boil down to one decision. Is this God's will for me or not? And, and let me give you this hint, too. I told this to a young lady recently. You need to pray, believe that you've heard from God, and then not back up on the decision. What I mean is, you can live in a constant state of worry about missing God. A constant state of, was that God then or, or not? Look at your life with sober judgment. Take an assessment of where your strengths and weaknesses in the kingdom are. Make the decision that you believe God has given you. And then don't second guess it. Go forward in faith. Does that, you, you got what I'm saying? Don't spend your whole life going, I did this and maybe I was wrong. When, when you have determined that God has shown you something, do it. Do it. And, and don't second guess it. Because when you do, there will always be opportunity, the devil, to get you off track. For, for instance, I'm not supposing, I'm not presuming, I know that God has called me to start this church. So, I'm not going to waste any time debating with myself, the devil, or anybody else whether or not that's really God's calling on my life. I'm moving forward in faith with that, looking for direction. It would be totally fruitless for me to begin to examine the natural elements and say, you know, after 16 months, there's only a handful of people here. Maybe that's not God. You know, that would be totally fruitless. It'd be anti-faith. Let's finish this. Uh, then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. To deny yourself is to put off your old self, is to crucify your desires, your flesh, your will. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me will find it. That's a bit of a paradox. People kind of read over it because it is. It's the most potent statement almost in all of the Bible. If you spend your time 
trying to fulfill your own desires, your own thoughts, your own will, you've missed out on the life that God had for you. If you spend all of your time throwing away your dreams, your desires, and taking up God's dreams and desires for you, you find life. That's, that's what that teaches. You notice there's not a lot of gray area in that. You know, he didn't say those that lose part of their life. Jesus is pretty much a sold out for him kind of God or not at all. What good will it be for a man if he gains the whole world yet forfeits his own soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what he has done. There is a day coming when the miracles that you've seen won't help you. The teachings that you heard won't help you. The only thing that will help you are the times that you put aside your desires, picked up God's. It was God-inspired work that you did, and it's considered fruit that lasts for the kingdom. Read Corinthians. Everything else is hay, stubble, and straw. You built something well enough, but it was not what God called you to build. So, well, what are you talking about? I'm talking about in your jobs. I'm talking about in your homes. I'm talking about with your kids. I'm talking about the fruit of your life. If God did not speak it, if he did not inspire it, it will not last. But if he did speak it, and you are diligent to complete it, it will last for an eternity, and you will be rewarded on that day. There was a story about a man, and I've shared this with you all, that went through Bible school. After he went through Bible school, he came out and uh, he ran for political office. And he got it. And then he ran for another political office. And he got it. And this guy, you know, he was a Christian. And a real Christian. I mean, at least by all accounts. Then he was running for governor of his state. Or maybe it was mayor of his city. And he had a heart attack on the city hall steps. And this guy's testimony. And Brad Lively is the one that called and told it to me. Heard it in person. Was he stood before God. And God said, give an account of your life. And he said, he stood there and he said, Lord, I, I was a Christian and I went to Bible school and then I went into politics in your service. And then I went, he said, the voice interrupted and said, give an account of your life. He said this time he was even more blown away by it. And he started to mumble again and the voice said, give an account of your life. And as he started to answer a third time. The Lord interrupted him and said, I didn't tell you to go to Bible school. I didn't tell you to be a politician. And I didn't tell you to be a mayor of this city. This was not my plan for you. Now, I know we heard last week and I supported 100%. It can be difficult to miss God. I mean, we don't need to fret over that every moment of the day. But stories like this one, where people have experienced missing God, and wasting a life. This guy, incidentally, says that when he stood before God and that happened, he also had a divine revelation of hell. Okay? This, and I'm not talking about that book. He said that because he missed through, and this is his testimony, it's not mine, it's extra biblical, you take it for what you want. He said that he was told that he was appointed 
for God's judgment because he had not done with his life what God called him to do. But that God, in an, in an instant and in an act of mercy, gave him a second chance. He has spent the rest of his life preaching and telling that testimony. And everywhere he goes, people are just totally being born again. I'm not saying that seeing the praises of this guy. We heard that it's hard to miss the will of God. It's hard to miss the will of God when you're seeking it every day. It's not hard to miss the will of God when it's a secondary thought. I'm not supposing that about anybody here. Please, God, don't you say that. This is what, what I'm saying is, it's hard to miss the will of God when you're walking intimately with Him. He will work it out so that you find it. But it is an easy thing to miss the will of God when that's not all you care about. When you really care about other things. Then it's easy to miss the will of God. This guy, looking back, cared about the pride of his education. He cared about his social standing and what people in the community thought about him. Can you miss God like that? Absolutely. A little leaven will spoil the whole loaf if you're not careful. It works through the whole batch of dough just like the kingdom of God does. So that he reached 50 years of age and had not done a thing that God told him to do. He'd done a lot of good things, but they were all human desires. He'd helped a lot of people, but it was not what God called him to do. Whatever it is that God has spoken to you, you be faithful to. You should not have to ask God what your calling is. I want you all to know that. Don't come ask me what I think your calling is. If I'm moved in prophecy to encourage you, I will. Okay? But your calling is what you find yourself doing daily that is God's will for your life. Your calling might be as simple as to encourage people and to pray for them. Your calling is not always something far off and very specific. My calling in general is to excite people about God. That's, that's in general my calling. Now, I've picked up some other details along the way. But we need to get out of this idea that our calling is to be a prophet to the nations or to be in Israel at a certain day and a certain time. A lot of this is not that worked out. Okay? Your calling might be wherever you are to bring the life of God. Might be a little while in Houston, a little while in Baton Rouge, a little while in New York. I don't know. That's between you and God. Well, I've got each of you here. I'm going to teach you everything that I know. I'm going to hear from God and boldly teach the revelation that he gives me, regardless of the consequences. Because that's what I'm called to do. And when I stand before him, I want to receive the well done, my good and faithful servant. There are four kinds of Christians that we ought to consider. Always seeing and never believing. Those that see and believe but are slow to understand and even slower to apply. Then there are the believers that have learned to receive revelation. Then the most mature group, the fourth group, are those that are correctable. Psalm 141 verse 5 says that it's better that a righteous man would strike you. It's a kindness and oil on your head. You need to develop that attitude. At times, I've seen that in each of you, and other times I've seen the total opposite, just like you've seen that in me. We need to strive to be that way always, so that even if somebody is wrong, but they are trying to be of benefit to you by bringing something to your attention, you ought to see it as a kindness. They would not be telling me this if they didn't love me. And look at it that way. See, because there are a lot of times in life where it is just plain not clear what God's will is. People have totally different ideas. But when you drop ranks and you get mad over that, you show how immature you are. God's will is that you would consider correction a kindness. 
and oil. Even if somebody walked up and slapped you across the face. That's the most mature group of Christians. We need to progress through those ranks. Now, you might be there in finances. You might have all the faith in the world, be correctable, be able to receive revelation, and not be there in some other area of your walk. You need to take a sober estimation of your life, apply the principles in Matthew 16, and progress through those ranks in every area of your life. Does that make sense to you all? I did not read the 28th verse of Matthew 16 because I believe that it goes very well with 17.1, which we're going to pick up in another time. Uh, that's, a, that's an instance where I'm not sure that they separated those chapters quite right. Um, oh, i got a bunch of other stuff to tell you all, but we're out of time and I have a bunch more time to preach to you. I found out recently that I don't have to tell you everything I know in a single evening. In fact, if I don't, maybe you'll come back for another message. <laughs> Y'all love Jesus? Do y'all want with all your heart to do the will of God? Do you believe Jesus is able to speak to you and give you revelation? Are you open to the idea that you may not always have it right and God might correct you? Amen. And what a blessing. As Bill so keenly pointed out, if that didn't happen, you'd be illegitimate. It's because we're God's children that he cares enough to make sure that we get that. Binding and loosing. Remember this principle. You can only bind those things God has revealed to you should be bound. You can only loose those things. That's how you have the keys of heaven to the extent that you're the mouthpiece for the Lord of heaven. Make sense? Kind of like judgment. The spiritual man makes judgments about all things. Why? Because the Spirit shows him. But you don't have the right in and of yourself to make judgment about anything. It must come from the Spirit. It's the key to Corinthians 2. Sign of Jonah. Not only is it the resurrection... But it's also the light to the Gentiles. It's Paul's whole ministry. It's the Gentile church. There's even more in that. But we'll pick up in Matthew 17 next Wednesday. Sunday I will have some anointed message from God that I have heard from the throne room about. I won't bring you anything less than that. So get here and invite somebody.